So one of the most heart-wrenching poems that I ever read in my life was a poem that was simply titled Prayer to Every God. And I've, I've shared, I think, in the past, some point in one of my teachings, this poem, but probably about five years ago, I was reading through, as I'm sure many of you do, some material from the ancient Near East. You know, all that literature from Assyria and Babylon and, you know, Egypt and stuff. Just doing light reading. And I came across this poem that just completely arrested my attention. And it was just so incredibly heart-wrenching because it was written by a petitioner who lived in Assyria approximately seven or so, seven or hundred years or so before Jesus came to earth. And the prayer was a reflection of how this gentleman felt as though there was some great tragedy going on in his life, and he couldn't figure out what he had done to warrant that pain and tragedy going on in his experience. And so what he realized was he needed to try to appease whatever God that he offended so that his life could be more enjoyable and full of peace. But the problem was he didn't know what God he had offended. That'd be pretty stressful, wouldn't it? And so what he decided to do in order to cover all of his bases is that he would just rattle off this prayer to every god. And so he said, for example, the god of so-and-so, I, I, I'm sorry I offended you, and the god of you know, the sun, and the god of the rain, and, the god, and he just went down the list praying this prayer to every single god with the hopes that this would pacify and appease the god that he had offended And as he came to the end of this poem, and as I get it, I just read this, and literally, it's so weird that a a, a document from, you know, 2,700 years ago was some random dude living in Assyria. I don't even know much about the Assyrians. It just moved me on such a deep, visceral level. And he comes to the end of his prayer, and he shares these words, although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, They, the gods, they don't come by my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. And then this is the final line of of the poem, of the prayer. He says, known and unknown God. He's like, I'm just, even the ones I don't even know, I'm going to pray to. Known and unknown God, my sins are seven times seven. Forgive my sins. But could you imagine that existence where your perspective, your religious perspective was such that every little thing you did was either punished or rewarded by the gods. And the gods' mercy towards you was dependent on your behavior towards that god. And so you would offer sacrifices, you would offer prayers, you would offer all these these crazy things in order to somehow get that God to shed its divine favor down upon you. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I find myself in, although I have an enlightened Christian perspective, I find myself far too often falling into that same mentality with the one single God that 
the Hebrew and Christian scriptures reveal. But you know what? There, as we talked about last week, there arose on the landscape of human history and consciousness this absolutely mind-blowing revelation that completely turned the world upside down. Well, I want to revisit with you this quote that we kind of ended with last week in this series, in this teaching series. We ended last week with this radical thought by this scholar named N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. Isn't it pretty cool that his initials are N.T. and he's a New Testament scholar? What, what luck did he was he blessed with. He wrote these words reflecting on the cross, the cross event. He said, Jesus' first followers saw the cross event as the vital moment, not just in human history, but in the entire story of God and the world. Check that out. Ponder that. Think about it. The vital moment, the most, the pinnacle of human history. Indeed, he said, now this is the part that captivates my imagination. Indeed, they believed it had opened a new and shocking window into the meaning of the word God itself. Like, the idea of God was redefined that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago in the collective consciousness and mind of human beings. It totally redefined it. They believed that with this event, the one true God had suddenly and dramatically put into operation his plan for the rescue of the world. When Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, something happened as a result of which the world is a different place. And we could cite all sorts of examples as we did last week. For example, just a very simple one, we literally measure time. The whole world now measures time in relation to that man, which is mind-boggling in that event. Says, and the early Christians insisted that when people are caught up in the meaning of the cross, so when you and I experience and understand and are embraced by the meaning of the cross, we also, they, you and I, become, check this out, we become a part of that difference. Isn't that cool? And he goes on to say, summing it all up Jesus' crucifixion was the day the revolution began. Now, what naturally comes to my mind is we've been developing this idea because, as you hopefully recall, we started off two weeks ago with the whole idea that at the very end of time, the end of days, which, and I don't have time to develop this, but I believe that, that we are working towards this grand climax, this grand crescendo as we look at the world around us of the events that are taking place and the, and the struggles and the, and the fighting and the you know, the, the political climate, we are, we are all working towards that grand climax where the end of days are coming. And I'm not one of these people that's this, you know, doomsday prophet, but I don't, I don't see how the world is going to be able to suddenly get better apart from any otherworldly intervention. So, but this, this amazing prophecy sets forth that before the end of days come, there is going to be this viral, viral revolution that encircles the whole planet with this amazing revelation of who God is. And what we're trying to, trying to unpack for ourselves is what is it that started that revolution? What is now the content of that revolution that went forth throughout 
the whole Middle East and Asia and Europe and around the world such that there are literally two billion, almost one out of every three persons in the world considers themselves to be a follower of this man Jesus. Now as I'm going to propose to you in the future, unfortunately this Jesus movement, although it, it spread somewhat rapidly after taking some time to get going, after a while, sadly, this Jesus movement got, and I, I'm going to use a very harsh word here, but the Jesus movement got bastardized, okay? And we're going to unpack that a little bit as we go forward. We won't spend much time on it in the future, but unfortunately, even though there's 2 billion people who are taking on the name of Jesus, not all 2 billion, believe it or not, are necessarily living out the true, authentic thing. I don't know if you can believe that, but... Not everybody who says they're a Christian is necessarily acting like the man that started the whole thing. Is that a stretch of your imagination? I know it may be a little controversial. And I want to say that I'm one of those people because I do not always accurately reflect that man who started the revolution. But nevertheless, the question is, the question is, what was it that was so revolutionary? What was it that was so viral that when people encountered and they witnessed and they heard about the cross event, what was it that was so revolutionary in people's minds? And I want to take a step back and, and dwell on that second sentence that we did a second ago, where N.T. Wright basically posits, he basically submits that the cross was a complete redefining of the understanding of God himself. That it was a complete changing of a paradigm that people had about who God was. We think about, as I said, this mentality 700 years before Jesus, this petitioner who's trying to appease the gods, and this is, your, this is the mentality that was present, and this was the, the, the worldview that was, that was characterizing the world at that time, and then Jesus comes on the scene, and God plants in the rocky soil of human understanding this totally new revolutionary thought about who God was. One of the verses that perhaps most beautifully explains this reality is a passage that we looked at just for a few minutes last week in one of my favorite, absolute favorite pieces of scripture that Paul, who was arguably the most influential Jesus follower, he shared these words as he wrote to a group of Jesus followers in the city of Corinth there in ancient Greece. And he said these words, and it's recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for Christ, and here's the key word. Here's the key word. For Christ, what? Love. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now, you and I are a bit of a disadvantage here because we have now come at the tail end of 2,000 years of influence that came from this Jesus movement. You and I live in a culture, in a climate, in a, in a worldview that has a, a general, though maybe perhaps vague, understanding of what the Christian message is. Because we are living at the, the tail end of that 2,000 years of history that has been influenced by this Jesus movement. And so when we read these words, we think to ourselves, oh, well, that's not that, all that profound. 
But this is what this is what got Paul up every day. This is what energized him and motivated him. This is what compelled him. This is what gave him inspiration and excitement. He says, for it is Christ's love that compels me. It is Christ's love that energizes me. It is Christ's love that motivates me. I was reading this other scholar, and just, again, indulge me for a minute, because this needs to be understood in a way that perhaps we can't fully appreciate if we have some sort of Christian understanding. But I want you to try to imagine this verse against the backdrop of that prayer that we read at the beginning. Understanding that the prayer at the beginning was largely representative of what the people of the day understood about God. And notice what this one scholar, also a New Testament scholar, says. He says the notion that there is one true and transcendent God and that this God, what? loves the world and humanity may have become subsequently such a familiar notion, whether or not it is actively affirmed, that we cannot easily realize how utterly strange, even ridiculous, it was in the Roman era. This was a completely revolutionary thought. This was a completely foreign idea. Notice what he goes on to write. He says, we do have references to this or that pagan deity as merciful or generous. Sure, there's some that that expose this idea. But the notion that the gods love humanity with anything approaching relational intensity ascribed to God rather ubiquitously. In other words, everywhere we read the, the, the Christian scriptures, it's just like everywhere. So, the idea that this is prevalent among the, the, the gods in the surrounding culture, like it was in early Christian texts, is, to put it mildly, hard to find in pagan texts of the Greek or Roman period. This was, as I said, a completely revolutionary thought. In the, in the, in the, in the context of the ancient Near East, in the context of the Rome and Greece and the pantheon of the gods, there was not this prevalent thought This all-consuming thought that God was chiefly defined as that of love. You appeased the gods. You mollified the gods. You you tried to convince them that you were worthy of their love. But along comes this, this God named Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God. And he sat down in the front of their understanding this totally foreign thought that no, God is chiefly defined as being one who has other-centered, self-giving, wholly committed, eternal love. And it gave people a new lease on life. It gave them a new perspective that unleashed this revolution that allowed them to step out into the light of the world and the light of God's love without shame and guilt, without feeling like every little thing they did was being closely examined by these gods who were wondering how they should now either reward or punish you. And if you have that guilt and that shame that is piling up in your psyche and your mind, and someone comes along and they say, no, 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 that's not what God is like. And they say, 
God is chiefly defined by love, and this is how we know. Because this God sent his own son to die in our place, taking the guilt and shame that you and I experience and saying that this no longer has a hold of you. It no longer has power over you. It no longer has any jurisdiction over you. And declaring that the character of this God is one of never-ending, never giving up, wholly committed, no matter what. This is the story of Israel. This is the backdrop of what happened because as we looked at very briefly last week, this, this idea that God had created man in his image and, and male and female, he created them and they were, they were to set out to be partners with him in the grand purposes for this world. And unfortunately, they turned their back on him and, and no sooner did they, they do that, but God came chasing after them. In a, in, a, in, a, in a context of love, and he wanted fellowship with them. And they tried to hide from, from him, but he wouldn't have anything of it. And he came closer and closer, and, and, and he promised them that he would send this rescuer, that he would not give up on them. And even though over and over and over and over again, the people that were supposed to be representing him to the world, even though they turned their back on him, God never gave up. He said, I am faithful to my commitment to humankind. I am faithful to my commitment to the world, even though they have turned their back on me, I'm never going to give up on them. And the cross event demonstrates with unequivocal clarity that this is the heart of God. And it was just completely revolutionary. Paul goes on to say, later on, he says, check this out, as a result of this, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. This is the way God operates with us. He doesn't look at humankind and say, okay, what are all the bad things that I can pick out to dwell upon in their life? I mean, if God did that with us, we would not even be in existence right now. But God foregoes judgment. He puts it off. He says, I'm not going to operate within that context with them. He doesn't evaluate others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. Yeah, we look at Jesus that way. We're like, oh, what's so special about this guy? That's what Paul says. He says, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God. The idea that the gods would gift me. Right? Like, I bring my gifts to the gods. No, no, no. The Bible teaches that God gifts himself to us. For God so loved the world that he, most well-known scripture in all the Bible, that he gave, he gifted us his son. By the way, he didn't just lend his son to us. He gave us his son. He's not taking him back. Jesus is one of us for all eternity, which is a mind-boggling thought. To think that God's character could be such that he would actually take on the flesh and blood of human beings for all eternity. It's like a writer writing himself into the script of a story. 
And actually, literally, it happens. And he, do, he can't get out of the story. God is in. He's invested. He's all in. He says, and all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us. This is the other part of the story that we're going to unpack because this is how the revolution keeps going. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. That's the reality of this this Jesus event, this cross story that has reshaped the whole world to such incredible degrees, but it's incomplete. It's still going on. And it's going to come to a crescendo when you and I join up with it. And we say, Lord, I want to be a part of that same cross event, that story. I want it to overtake my life. I want to be like Paul and say, this reality compels me. It, it invites me into the, the, the current of that love and we are washed out and, and, and influence others, bringing them back into the family of God. If I were to sum it all up, I would put it in this way, just as the big idea. The cross was the earth-shattering revelation of God's whole-souled, wholehearted commitment to his creatures, even to death. That's the bottom line. You and I might feel like this is old hat, and we say, ah, yeah, okay. I've been singing Jesus loves me, this I know, since I was a little kid. I know all this. And yet, I know that I need to keep going back to it again and again and again and again. As I've mentioned many times before, you never graduate from the gospel. You never graduate from the good news and say, okay, I got that figured out. Now let's move on to calculus. (laughs) Amen? We don't need to move on to calculus. No, we keep going back to it again and again. You know, I open up this whole teaching series with a little story about how I was in Scotland for one year as a, as a missionary. I had no idea what I was doing. It was a very, very long year. And I was there when I was 20 years old, which is, oh, man, it's almost half my life ago. Isn't that crazy? And I was there when I was 20, and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> And I, I was supposed to be, like, helping spread the good news and bring people back into, like, some sort of understanding of God. You know, in Scotland, it's, it's one of the most secular countries in the world. Only about 3 to 5% of people go to church in any given week in Scotland. Within our own faith community, of a country of 5 million people, do you know how many Seventh-day Adventists there are in Scotland? There are 250. Quite staggering, isn't it? And we're not unique in that regard, although I will say there's like 20,000 Latter-day Saints there, but that's another story. Um, But, you know, I was there, and I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do here. And one of the things I decided to do is I was going to go, and I was going to start a bar ministry. Never drank a lick in my life, but... I thought, you know, Scottish people have the reputation of liking their drink, so I'm going to go to a bar, and I'm going to just hang out with these dudes at this bar. And so I went, I remember it was like the first Friday night, I went down to this bar, 
and I'm standing around, and like, I, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> Not only did I had never been in a bar before, but I didn't know, like, even if it was just like the YMCA, I wouldn't know how to talk to people. Like, it was so awkward. And I remember finally this one guy who was playing pool, and he's like, well, you know, talking to me. He's like, where, where are you from? I was like, well, I'm from the U.S. And he's like, well, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm here for, like, I'm working for a church. And he instantly, he instantly said this. He goes, well, you better not try to convert us. <laughs> I was like, message received. <laughs> and needless to say, I did not go back the next for Friday night. But... It was such a hard year, and I didn't know how to reach people. I had no idea what I was doing, and so it was an utter, absolute failure. But something amazing happened that year. I had all this free time because I didn't know what I was doing, and there was nobody there mentoring me. And I felt my heart hungry for some deeper experience with God. And up until that point, I kind of knew the general ideas of what we broadly call the gospel, but I didn't know that I really had a deep knowledge and experience with it. And I had come across some writings that my dad had recommended to me. Writings that, in some people's estimation, were sort of like dangerous. And they were dangerous because they were so focused on the love of Jesus. Isn't that a sad idea? And I said, man, I want to I read more about this stuff. And so I contacted this ministry in this little town called Berrien Springs, Michigan, Some of you may have heard of this town. There might be others who have never heard of it, and that's okay. Bering Springs, Michigan is the location of the Seventh-day Adventist Church's flagship university called Andrews University. But this little ministry was publishing these materials that were sort of like fringe materials and like people weren't supposed to really read them because they were from writers that... Anyway, I won't go into all the details, but I found myself wanting to read and hear more of it. And so I contacted that ministry, and I said, I'm over here in Scotland. I want to get more books. Do you have anything you can give to me? And they said, well, we actually have somebody there that we know in Scotland who we know has a whole bunch of supply for the materials you're looking for. And so here's the person's name, and here's his information. You can go find him and meet up with him. And so I contacted the man. He had some, I think it was email. And we said, we're going to meet at this train station in my city where I was living. The train station was in, in the city of Perth. And, and here's who I am. This is what I look like and so forth. It was just kind of a weird thing. I was 20 years old. I'm like, I don't know who this dude is. But anyway, certain that at the, the right time and the right day, I went to this train station and Hopefully this guy will never listen to this. but Because I'm, I'm actually not convinced that he wasn't an angel. Because um, I have no idea who he is or where he came from or where, whatever happened to him. But I show up, and there's this guy, and he's in this long trench coat. And he has like this, 
those of you who are familiar with wrestling, like there was this guy called The Undertaker. <laughs> like that's what he looked like. And he had this hat on like this. And it was like, and he had like this big suitcase with him. And like, I think I invited him back to my apartment and I'm just like really nervous. But he brings his suitcase back and he opens it up and he flips it open and he has all these books. And he's, he's an American guy living in Scotland for reasons that are not clear to me. And he just shared with me that when he lived back in the United States, he came across this beautiful message of God's love and it so gripped his heart. And he just wanted to distribute all this material to whomever he could. And I was the recipient. And he had tapes and he had CDs. And I tell you what, I think it was tapes. I went and I put a tape in my tape player. And I can just remember this day. I would just sit on, lie on the couch there in my apartment. And I would just soak in this message of God's love that I had never encountered before. And the, the preacher, this old preacher, he would just talk about, especially the cross, and we talk about Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was like nothing I had ever heard before, and it just, it just swept over my, my whole being. And it, it just gripped my heart like nothing had before. And there... That year was, like I said, a really hard year. But at the end of that year, as I read that material, as I listened to those sermons, I had a completely new lease on life. I became actually a good student after that, which is one byproduct of the whole thing. When I went back to school. But this, this love, this, the, the preacher, he focused specifically on the Greek word agape, love. A completely foreign, revolutionary thought. This love just swept over me. And I became actually pretty annoying after that. Because whenever I was invited to preach or to teach like our Sabbath school, that's all I want to talk about. And people are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you're annoying. Stop talking about that. I, I, but I was, like, so zealous for this. And ever since then, I trust you'll forgive me that I just want to keep coming back to that. Because where else can I be but there, at the foot of that cross? You know, it's not just us as individuals. We are invited to the family of God that collectively allows that love to penetrate our hearts, changing us so that we spread it out to others. And that's the revolution. Have you been swept up by that love before? Have you been compelled by it? Have you been gripped by it? Have you understood that God's love is a never-giving-up, whole-souled, wholehearted commitment to the very depths of experience? I hope that you will keep going back to that idea. And only through that can you and I join up with this revolution.